we are going to be in Psalm 85 this morning, but it will be a little while before we get there. Um, but if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 85, that will be the first passage that we will look at. And um, Psalm 51, we might not make it there until tonight. Um, but how many of you during Christmas enjoyed some uh, summer sausage and cheese? Anybody? It's one of my favorite things to get. Uh, so, for some reason, I'm the one that has to go get it from CVs, though, because my wife won't pick it up for me. Uh, I don't know what that says. But anyway, uh, you know the great thing about summer sausage is, is just however much you want, what do you do? Just chop it off, and you got the rest for later. So that's what we're going to do with the sermon today, is when I run out of time, we're just going to chop it off, and then we'll pick it up tonight. And so I really do encourage you to come back tonight. And here's the deal. If you leave the, the, the service this morning not feeling as if God has moved or spoken, um, then you have my permission to not come tonight, all right? However, if you believe that God has spoken and God has moved this morning, then uh, you have my encouragement, strong encouragement to come tonight. And so I hope that you will... Um, enjoy what God has for us this morning. Uh, Randy, if you would, would you go backwards to the course of Just As I Am, um, that the new version? Okay, so we're going to be talking about revival, as you saw on the screen just a second ago, and I didn't ask Kenny to lead this song. I, this song was chosen uh, by him. But it speaks to exactly to where we are going this morning and what we are looking at. And so my question to you this morning is, is this true? Because so many times we sing songs that were written, uh, you know, a few years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Sometimes we're singing songs straight from the Bible that were written thousands of years ago. And sometimes when we're singing songs, we we don't pay attention to what we're singing. So I just want us to pause for a second. Because I want you to know that revival cannot happen without meaning this. In fact, repentance and revival are so tied together that some people say that repentance is revival. That once repentance has started, true repentance on a mass scale, that that, that is the forefront of revival. That is the introduction. It's part of it. And so, do you come broken this morning? Do you come to Jesus broken? Not pretending to be strong and fixed and have it all together, but do you come to Him broken? How many of you are wounded? How many of you have experienced pain recently? Do you come wounded to be healed. You can go to the next slide. When's the last time that you can say that you came to God desperate? When you're desperate, it means you're out of options. When you're desperate, it means that you have nowhere else to turn. And so many times when we get desperate in life, when we get desperate in our situations, we turn to so many things. I was talking to a friend this week who was talking about 
how tempted he is to self-medicate when he is in a place of brokenness. Whether it's just by binging on Netflix or something else. Whether it's something that's uh, inherently sinful or something that could be good until you turn it into a crutch that keeps you from running to God. And so are you desperate for God? If we're not desperate for God, then something is wrong. If we are Christians and we do not hang on His Word, if we are Christians and we do not hang on an intimate relationship with Him, then there's something that's wrong. I don't care how we were raised. I don't care what culture we are in. I care about what the Word of God says. And the Word says that He is everything. That He is the Alpha and the Omega. That He is the beginning and the end. That we need Him for everything. He is our rock. He is our salvation. And when we come to Him desperately to be rescued, guess what He does? He rescues us. In His timing, in His way, He rescues us. I come empty to be filled. How many of you are bold enough this morning, just to be honest, I'm not going to make you walk an aisle yet, but just where you are right now, how many of you feel empty? Anybody? Several people in here. I come empty to be filled. I'm not talking about coming to church, although that's a really good place to find Jesus. I'm not talking about coming to men's Bible study or women's Bible study or teen kids. I'm talking about going to God and saying, I need you. I'm empty. A few years ago, thank you, Randy, you can go back to the title slide. A few years ago, um, I've told many of you about this. Uh, I don't know how many years ago it was now, maybe five years ago. Um, the Arkansas Baptist State Convention started doing an annual prayer gathering for ministers. And uh, I went because I worked for the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, and it was my job to go. And I was looking forward to it because in the uh, couple of weeks preceding, God had started doing a work in my life. And what he started doing is he started shining a light on me and showing me that I didn't have things together like I thought I did. He started showing me that I wasn't desperate for him, that I wasn't coming empty to him to be filled. And when I showed up at that prayer meeting, I wanted God desperately to reveal himself. And in that, there were a lot of men who loved the Lord in that room. There were some women with us in that room who were crying out to God. And I, I've said this before, but I just remember this one guy across the room from me who just, at, in this moment where we're just supposed to be praying individually, going to God, and this guy from across the room just, you know, God, help me. And it was a desperation in his voice. Not even necessarily an assurance that God would help. Just 
God, help me. And how many of us have been there? And at my point, at that point in my life, I'm not sure that I had ever been there to that degree. Where I was so desperate for Him that I just needed Him. That's all I needed was Him. He could answer my problems. He could remedy what was wrong. He could feel what was empty. He could mend what was broken. And that man, that day when he cried out like that, it awoken something in me that helped me realize that my prayers were lacking. My prayers were not as sincere as they should be. How many of you that are Christians, you've been a Christian for a while, how many of you have had a a moment of personal revival in your life where when it occurred, you wondered if you had ever really been living right for the Lord before because you felt so close to Him now? Anybody ever experienced something like that? A lot of us have. And some of us have experienced that more than once. What we are going to talk about this morning, that experience is part of it. But that's not all of it. What we are going to talk about is revival on a biblical scale. Revival, not just in an individual, but that spreads beyond. Revival that just doesn't affect Richard. It affects everyone Richard comes into contact with. If God revives him and then he goes out. That is biblical revival. That it's not just on an individual basis. Now, thank God for individual revival. And I've experienced that in my life. And in that moment when that man cried out, that was part of a process of God reviving me, restoring me um, in a way that I've never experienced up to that point. And so that's what God was doing in my life. Over the next few weeks and months, I began to study just people praying, people, how God had revived people in the past. I started looking and studying, uh, looking at and studying revival in a pretty detailed way, and the things I learned and the things I came across were amazing, and it revived me. It it, It brought me to a place in my relationship with the Lord that I've never experienced, and so I'm hoping that this morning would just be a little seed, a little, a catalyst to, to spark something in you to help you get to a place of personal revival. But I'm also hoping this morning that the same would happen for me. I'm not going to come with excuses to be healed. That's not what we do, is it? What do we just sing? We come broken to be mended. We come wounded to be healed. And so what I'm going to tell you this morning is, is that as I'm talking about these things, as I've been refreshing myself on this stuff this week, as I've read Psalm 85 and Psalm 51, um, I'm just going to be honest without excuses and say that uh, I need revival. And I am empty. And I don't know why, but it is what it is. And I'm going to continue to be obedient, and I'm going to continue to be the pastor that God has called me to be, or strive to be anyway. Uh, But that doesn't 
change the other things that are true also. That, that is that I am empty. And I need him to fill me. It doesn't change the fact that uh, five years ago when I was at that prayer meeting, I was standing on top of a ladder and I had reached the ceiling. And I was breaking through to a new level. And God was awakening something in me. He was reviving me and restoring to me the joy of my salvation. And he was doing something incredible. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just trying to be honest that today I come to you and I don't feel like I'm standing on top of a ladder breaking through a ceiling. I feel like I'm on a floor face down, not knowing what to do. I'm not trying to scare y'all or anything. I'm not going to leave Rose and go buy a red convertible. But it is what it is, and that is how I've been feeling. And we don't live our life by feelings or experiences. But how many of you have ever felt intimately close to God where you felt like it was almost tangible, like if you just closed your eyes and reached out, you were going to accidentally poke him in his chest because he felt so close. How many of you have ever felt like that toward God? Once you feel that, and that feeling is absent, it should awaken a desperation in you. You should know that God is there, that he is omnipresent, that he hasn't gone anywhere, that your salvation is secure. I'm not saying that we should doubt any of those things. But what I'm saying is, is that while we don't live by feelings, feelings are an important part of who we are. And we cannot let our feelings determine our obedience. But if you read the Psalms, how many Psalms are about my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Where were you in my day of battle? These people are mocking me. Those are emotional things, right? I mean, you can't get through a psalm without reading something emotional. And so what I'm telling you this morning is this, is that as your pastor, I wish I could stand here and tell you I've got it all together, I've got all the answers, and I know where we need to go and what we need to do, and here we go. And if my inability to do that means that I shouldn't be your pastor, then I completely understand that, and whatever God desires is what I desire. But I don't think it means that. I think it means that pastors, just like everyone else in this room, we are human, and that the place that I should go to determine my steps is Scripture and His Word, And how has he acted before? How has he shown himself faithful before? And so this morning, that's what I want us to talk about. I want us to talk about some of the ways that God has shown himself faithful, especially in times when people have come to him in repentance to say, here are my sins, God, please forgive me. And they have turned from those sins and they have gone in his way and in his path and in his direction. Because anytime we look at revival, whether biblically or historically, since, since the Bible was written, we see repentance 
and a passion and zeal for prayer always precede revival. Like I was saying earlier, even to the point where some people say that is revival. That's the beginning of revival, is repentance and prayer. And so think about Moses. When the people, sorry, Terry, I'm getting ahead of us in our class. But the people are delivered from Egypt. And in Exodus 18 uh, and and then in 19, the people are coming to the foot of the mountain. And and Moses goes up on the mountain in 19. And God says, I want you to go down and tell my people that this is what I have for you. And it's these great things. And I've, I've preached a sermon on this here before. And um, and Moses goes down the mountain, and he tells the people, draw near. God is going to tell you this great news, and the news is, is that they are to be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that he is going to use them to reach the entire world. Great news. They're his people. And so the people draw near to the mountain, and they're supposed to approach, and, but they're scared. They see the presence of God, and they get scared, and so they, they tell Moses, you draw to, near to the thick darkness where God is, but we're going to stay back here. And they all stood back there, and Moses drew near, and Moses has this experience with God. He, he goes up on the mountain. He's there for a long time. You fast forward a lot of chapters into chapter 32, and God is, and Moses are talking, and God tells Moses, you better get down that mountain right now, because what have the people done? They made a golden calf. They have begun to give credit to a man-made object for delivering them out of Egypt when we know it was Yahweh. It was the one true God who delivered them out of Egypt. And uh, Moses, God tells Moses, get down the mountain now, and I'm about to destroy them all, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, Moses could have listened to God. Usually that's a good idea, right, listening to God. And he could have gotten out of the way. And he could have let God destroy all the people, and God could have started over with him. But what did Moses do? If you want to turn there and read, feel free to do that. Moses stood right in between God and the people. He did not go down the mountain. He said, God, remember your promise to Abraham. Remember what you did to deliver these people out of Egypt. What will the world say? That you delivered them just to watch them die in the desert? And, and Moses began to intercede for the people. He began, he began to pray, as we should do. And he went down the mountain, and he told the people, get ready, God is coming to judge. And the people began to repent. And so we see this prayer, we see this repentance, we see this happen. And the people repent, and they tell God they're sorry, and, and, and God moves in the people to bring them to repentance. And when revival takes place, a biblical-type revival, uh, uh, revivals that have happened on a big scale historically, it's not just one person who repents. All the people affected repent. And that's what we see in Exodus 32. And then um, Moses is good. The people repent, and God is going to forgive them, but God is not going to go to the promised land with them now because of their sin. And Moses says, God... What is the promised land without you? Who cares about that if we don't have you? And how many of us would say that in our life? 
where we're desperate, we come longing to God, where we don't care about what he can give us, we just care about him. Or we at least, at the, at the minimum, we care more about God than what he can give us. And it wasn't even over. God, yeah, God says, you know what, I will go to the promised land with you. And, and I think that obviously God knew what he was doing. If he's omniscient and he knows all, he knew what he was doing and he knew how Moses would respond. And thankfully, Moses chose to respond the way he did. And then it, if you fast forward a little bit more, Moses wasn't done. He says, God, show me your glory. I mean, as if sparing all of Egypt and continuing to go to the promised land wasn't enough, Moses boldly asked God for more of himself. Show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, okay, I'll show you a little bit. You can't handle it all. But he puts him in the cleft of the rock of the mountain, and he puts his hand over him, and he is able to see a part of his glory. And we see that. Large-scale prayer. Everybody was crying out, right? First, Moses was. And usually in revivals, there are people, individuals, who, who have the burden for prayer and repentance first, but they become leaders for the group. They become on the forefront of what God is doing, and they become examples to others of what revival looks like. What if God were to choose you to do that this morning? What if God were to choose me to do that this morning? And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care who he uses. I just want him to do it. I just want him to come. I want him to bring all those things that we were talking about. I want him to bring his presence and his glory. I want him to arrive in such a way where God moves in an incredible fashion, where it's never forgotten, where it's written in the history books. I want him to do a work in our generation Selfishly, because I want to experience his presence. But even more than that, because there are way too many people who do not know Jesus and are going to die separated from him. And that should not be okay with us. There should be something incredibly wrong with that. In Nehemiah 8, we see the fulfillment of something that God had spoken earlier, just the very brief summary. God told Jeremiah the people of Israel better repent or I'm bringing judgment. I'm, I'm, I, and God did. He brought judgment because they didn't repent. And they were taken as exiles into Babylon. And when they got to Babylon, the false prophets who told them not to repent in the first place, that God was fine. He wasn't going to hurt them. They were his people. Um, the false prophet said, no, God's going to deliver us from Babylon. Don't worry about it. And Jeremiah wrote him a letter and said, no, you're going to be there for 70 years. And yeah, God knows the plans he has for you, and their plans for good. And that verse in that context is not the way we usually say it. But in the middle of pain, in the middle of chaos, God says, one day, good's going to come from this. And you fast forward until the exile was over, 70 years, and Nehemiah, the, the cupbearer, comes into the king's room, and he is telling him about Jerusalem and the walls being destroyed, and he goes back and uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and others rebuild the walls. And then in Nehemiah 8, we see where Ezra the scribe is standing and reading God's word to the people. And as they hear the word of God, what happens? They begin to weep. They begin to repent. They begin to cry out to God. And this is supposed to be a celebration. And so Nehemiah and others are like, hey, let, 
hold on one second. Let's thank God for what he has done before repentance and all this. That's the only time in the Bible that I can think of where they said, put off your mourning for just a second while we focus on this. And so these great things happened. God answered, I mean, he, he did what he said he was going to do in restoring them. He brought revival. He brought repentance. That's revival. That's what it looks like. The people were crying out to him. They had a hunger and prayer to cry out to God. Do we have that today? I don't think it's something that we can manufacture. I don't think that this sermon is going to magically bring revival. I think that it has to be God. I think that it has to be God. And if he puts it on our heart to repent, then we have to repent. And if we individually, if we don't repent, then we could be quenching the spirit. We could be quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit. We could be quenching revival. We could be our disobedience could stop a move of God. I don't know why this works like this, but this is how this works throughout the Bible and throughout history is that when we disobey God, the sense of his presence flees like a dove quickly. Uh, I can't remember who said this, but I remember reading, I think it might have been R.T. Kendall, but someone said, uh, he might have been quoting someone. Uh, years ago, I read that the Holy Spirit comes in on horseback, or sorry, comes in like a dove and leaves on horseback. And so we have to obey God when he calls. We can't just think about, oh, but I really want to do this one thing that probably isn't right. We have to listen to God and obey him. Now, time is running out, and I haven't even gotten to other biblical examples like Jonah chapter 3, where we studied Jonah, where Jonah reluctantly goes to the people of Nineveh and tells them that they need to repent because judgment is coming. And what do they do? They repent. They cry out to God. And God brings revival. Historically, there have been moments over and over and over again throughout the years where God brings revival, whether we're going back to just a few hundred years. I mean, first of all, um, after the ascension of Christ, there was a day of Pentecost. Um, that was pretty amazing. But then you fast forward 400 years later, and you have God doing this incredible move among the, the Roman Empire, or the ashes of it, uh, where God uses Constantine and others to do these incredible things. And you fast forward throughout history, and you can see God bringing revival, not just to individual towns, not just to individual countries, but revivals that spread across many towns, many states, many countries in some cases. And we see this time and time again. I mean, you think about something like the Reformation where Martin Luther saw the things that the, the church was doing wrong, and many times revival comes when there is an unrest in the current standing of the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean just one church. I mean Christians in general, the church. And so in, we see that during the Reformation. And if we fast forward to America... We see the first great awakening where God comes to men like Jonathan Edwards and others and revival falls and 
just in one church service. Everybody's on the ground. Everybody's crying out to God. It, dozens are getting saved, and then it spreads, and hundreds are getting saved, and these incredible things happen. We see in the Second Great Awakening, you know, many times when we're talking about how bad we need revival, we tend to think that there's never been a time in history where it's been as bad as it is today. If I were to ask if you've thought that to raise your hand, many of you would raise your hand. But that's relative. Because if you were Jewish in the time of Hitler, what do you think is worse? That or this? That. It's relative. If, if you were Rwandan during the genocide and you were on the losing end of that, which end do you, do you think that that was worse or today is worse? That was worse. And so... During the time of the Second Great Awakening, when it was coming to be, it had not occurred yet, um, in the 1780s, uh, at Princeton, there were only two people who professed to be Christians in the whole school. In Yale, there were a few Christians, but uh, Timothy Dwight became the president of that college. He was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. And he did that uh, in 1795, and there were very few Christians. And the, uh, the fraternities, the clubs at the time, uh, named themselves after famous, famous atheists of the day, and things seemed pretty bad. Now, I've been to some major universities across our country when I used to work with campus ministry, and I've never been on a campus where there were only two Christians that I know of. So what was worse? I'm not saying it's not bad today. It's bad. But we could think, well, what's God going to do with this since we're so bad today? And I'm telling you that God has done more with worse situations. And so in 1802, seven years after Timothy Dwight became president of Yale University, in 1802, There were 230 students enrolled at the time. About half of the seniors entered into the ministry. Not just got saved, entered into the ministry. There were about 63 students converted just that year. In 1806, there was the Haystack Revival, where Samuel Mills and four others went out in this hay field and college students and that they were praying and they were praying that God would show up and move, and he did. And out of that came what we consider the the, mission, just what we consider foreign missions that didn't really exist at at a scale of whole groups of people sending out missionaries. And that came from revival. God moves in revival. In 1857, there was the Layman's Prayer Revival where Jeremy, Jeremiah Lanfear, he, by himself in New York City, sent out pamphlets, like printed up things and sent them out and invited hundreds of people to come to his church. I, I believe he was a Methodist pastor. Um, come to his church at noon on a Wednesday. And the time came after prayer and prayer and prayer and work and sending out flyers, and inviting people, and word of mouth, and whatever there was back then, and two people showed up. 
Fast forward. Two years later, there are people over the entire country meeting at lunch, on their lunch hour, going to churches and praying, using his structure of how to pray because God can bring revival just through a man like Moses. God can bring revival through someone faithful like Jeremiah and fear. God can bring revival through you. Tonight we're going to talk about the Welsh revival and, and the revival that took place on the Hebrides Islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. And there's some incredible testimonies, incredible stories that we'll talk about tonight. And I really hope that you're there. But Evan Roberts, who led the Welsh revival, he, he had four keys to revival. And those four keys were you must put away any unconfessed sin. You must put away any doubtful habit. You must obey the Holy Spirit promptly. And you must confess Christ publicly. So do you have any unconfessed sin this morning? Do you have any habits in your life where you're not sure if it's okay or not? If you're not sure, just put them away. Any doubtful habit. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to respond to Him, then respond to Him. And if you haven't confessed Christ publicly, then do that this morning. Let me read Psalm 85 in our closing. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You were favorable. Notice the past tense. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? In the revivals that we're going to talk about tonight and the revivals that I mentioned earlier, it wasn't just a person, it wasn't just two people where God moved and changed their lives and changed their hearts and revived them again. It was dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and it spread and it spread and it spread and we're still feeling the effects of some of that today. The Methodist church exists because of a revival. The Baptist church can thank a revival in this country for giving us the, the ability to reach as many as we have. We'll talk about some of those things tonight. But what I want to talk about right now is where do you stand? Are you desperate for God? Do you want to see Him move in you? Do you want to see Him move in our church? But revival doesn't stay inside of a church. Revivals can't stay inside of a heart. It overflows. It overflows the walls. Almost all revivals, in fact, right now off the top of my head, I can't think of one revival that only affected a denomination. So not only does it not stay inside the walls of a church, it doesn't stay inside the walls of a denomination. And then you have examples that we'll talk about tonight where there were places where the judges wore white gloves and laid them 
down to signify that they were, there were no cases to be tried that day. Because when God moves, he doesn't just move in our hearts. He doesn't just move in a way that makes us feel good. He moves in a way that demands our obedience. He moves in a way that captivates us, where we're no longer slaves to these other things, but we're slaves to him, where we no longer want to do these other things. All we want is him. And it changes a society. It changes culture. I know that we've all had experiences. We've all experienced revival on a different scale. I say all. A lot of us in the room have experienced revival where God showed up and where several people got saved and where good things happened. I've experienced that many, many times. But I want to experience something where God shows up to the point where we're closing the doors of our jails and our prisons where we don't need them anymore. I want to see God show up in a way that, that people that we never thought would get saved. I was talking to somebody in here this morning, and we were talking about people in our lives where at some point or another we thought there's no chance they'll get saved. I want to see them saved. I want to see God move. I want to see God doing incredible things that we never expected. So how many of you, how many of you want to see the same thing? That was a little underwhelming. No, I'm just picking on you. Then we have to respond to God in repentance, in longing prayers, in sincerity. And if it's not there, if the desire isn't there, then what do we do? We, do, we obey and we ask God for the desire. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning. And here's your invitation. Respond to God in whatever way he's leading. I don't know what that means. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Move tonight. Move right now. Lord, help us to see how you have worked throughout history to bring revival and bring it here now, Lord. Please, God, bring it to me. Lord, I want to have the discipline to obey you, but I also want to have the burning desire to obey you. I want to have the discipline to love others, but I want to have the love of Jesus overflowing out of me to where I can't help but love others. God, I pray for our church. I pray that you would revive us, Lord. We have seen how you have been faithful in the past. We pray that you would be faithful once more. Lord, we have seen how you have moved hearts. We've seen how you have saved the lost. We've seen how you have revived the saved. Lord, we pray that you would move again. And I just pray, God, that right now that we would respond to you in whatever way you're leading. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to come to the altars to pray, come pray. If you want to ask Jesus to save you, ask him to save you. You respond to God in whatever way he's leading.
Thank you all for coming. I, I, I do want to read a quote as we're dismissing. Michael Katz, in referring to how most revivals were started by young people, most of us in here are too old. Ah, I'm too old. To, according to history and how it's worked in the past, to be on the front end of a revival. Not older than Moses, by the way. But, oh. And he said this, Some of us are too old to play a part in starting a revival, but all of us can kill one. So I hope that as you walk out these doors this morning, that you would do so in reverence, trembling before uh, Almighty God and asking Him, God, please bring revival and use me to bring it and don't allow me to prevent it. I hope you're back here tonight at 6. I'm going to ask Jake, if you would, if you would close us in prayer.